You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Before we get into the show... I just want to go over a few things. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, check us out on Facebook under Millionaires Unveiled. And we have some new things on the website, uh, millionairesunveiled.com, as well as on Twitter. Also, we're closing on some deals in the multifamily space here shortly. And if you'd like to, uh, to talk with us about those, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Today on the show we have Eric, and Eric's net worth is just over $5 million. He started out working a W-2 job and worked there until he was in his mid-50s, made six figures, had a pension, 401k plan, match, bonus, you name it. And then he decided to go into real estate and is up to over 25 doors now. And has continued to grow his real estate portfolio and just loves living the life that he is living now. So without further ado, let's get right into the show with Eric. Welcome to Millionaires Unveiled. Today we have Eric with us. Eric, will you just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to today? Sure. Well, today it's, uh, you know, I'm a real estate investor. I used to work a full-time job up until July 5th of 2016. Um, I slowly started investing in real estate a few years ago and, and I'm up to 25 renters at this point. I have five fourplexes, a couple duplexes single-family house, and a single-family house I'm actually rehabbing at this point, so it's a major, major remodel, um, but that's that's what I do, and now I just have fun. After I quit my job, I'm, uh, I'm living, living the life that I kind of wanted to. And what did you do for work before you became a full-time investor? You know, I was a, uh, an IT guy at, at a major bank, you know, and I had six-figure income and four weeks of vacation, 401k pension, 401k match. Um, 10 holidays, you know, it's kind of a tough, tough gig to le- leave every year. You get about a 15% bonus, um, kind of a tough gig to leave. But at some point you, you, you realize your time is more valuable than your money. I mean, when you're younger then whatever, you got a lot of time, right? And you got no money. But as you get older and I retired at 56 from my real job. So you realize that, you know, life is short. And what is your net worth today? Slightly over 5 million. And, and what was it when you retired? It was probably about four and a half or, or maybe a little less than that a couple of years ago, right? A year and a half ago. How is that broken up today? It's about 50-50 real estate and, um, and stocks Okay. because I don't really have much in the line of cash or I should say bonds. <clears throat> Pretty much I view my real estate portfolio as enough because most of my properties are paid off as well. So I, you know, if you talk to a lot of financial advisors, they're they're always saying, oh, stocks and bonds and 110 minus your age or 100 minus your age, and I'm sure you've seen all the different allocation formulas. But I realized that my own mortgages that were, you know, some were over five percent interest. If I put money on my mortgage, like start to pay it off early, that's like getting five percent of my money. And so where else am I going to get five percent on a money on a bond? And not only that, but my mortgage is more guaranteed than U.S. Treasury because if I don't pay it, 
it's they're going to take the property. Right? <laughs> so if I put money on that, it's guaranteed to be 5% or 5 and 3 eighths or whatever it was. But if I put money in a whatever, Orange County, California bond, that could go broke. But my mortgage ain't going to go broke. It's always going to be there. And with the money that you've got invested in your retirement accounts and in your taxable accounts, what, what are the top holdings of those? So pretty much I have um, IVV, which is S&P 500 um, ETF. I have IVW, which is a S&P 500 growth fund. So it takes the S&P 500 and just takes probably some of the faster moving companies in the S&P. I have uh, HDV and DVY, which are dividend aristocrat kind of ETFs. I have some triple Q and some IVW, I'm sorry, I, IWM, right, which is the um, um, Russell 2000. And I think that's about it. And, and they're just kind of buy and hold, dividends reinvested. I don't try to play games with options like I used to or, or time it to come in and out. I don't pay capital gains on them because they don't sell. I mean, obviously, I pay um, taxes on the, uh, the dividends, but... You know, when you don't sell, you don't pay capital gains. So it's pretty simple. Gotcha. And how long have you been investing in in these uh, taxable and and tax advantaged accounts? You know, I had a Roth IRA way back when they first started, and back then you could convert some of your IRA money to a Roth IRA and take four years to pay the taxes. So if you put say forty thousand dollars into a Roth. Every year you would declare $10,000 and pay tax on the 10, you know, because when you do a conversion from a IRA to a Roth, you got to pay tax on it. And, and in today's tax rule, you got to pay it on the whole thing. But back when they first started, you had four years to do it. Um, but ever since I was working any job that I ever had with a 401k, and, you know, nowadays you start a company and 30 days later you can do the 401k. But back then you used to have to sometimes be with a company for a year before you could start the 401k. Um, but anyway, so I've, I've been doing it since... I want to say in the mid '80s or or prior, you know. And that was right after you graduated college. Pretty much, even in college, I was a bartender working for the Marriott Corporation, and I believe they had a little savings plan, and I used to put money in that as well. At the peak, what do you think your uh, savings rate was? You know, when I was working for the bank, I used to put 75% of my salary to my 401k, and you know, you can only put in 24000 because I was over 50 at that point. And so 75% of my salary went into the 401k until it got maxed out. And I used to max it out sometimes, say, by the end of March. In addition to that, I would max out my healthcare savings account. So at that point, it was 4350 or something like that. I would also do a either after-tax Roth or a uh, after-tax IRA if I could. After-tax IRA, I could, but the pre-tax, I could not. So either Roth or a, and plus I used to save a ton of money on top of that. Um, I want to say I was saving double what my gross pay was at my job because I was living on my real estate income. Wow. What about, so what about making it my, my job? I was saving double that. What about before you bought your first piece of real estate? What was your savings right back then? Oh, it was like minuscule. It was, you know, I, I was still doing probably close to the max, but I can remember thinking, you know, and of course, money was different then too, right? But I can remember thinking, if I can only save a thousand dollars a month, that would be a lot of money, <laughs> you know. And I was, you know, fifteen thousand a month at one point, so or or more. Wow. So after a while, 
you decided to get into real estate. When, how long ago did you buy your, your first real estate investment? You know, I first, my dad was in real estate. He was a broker, right? And he wasn't, I mean, he was an okay broker, but he wasn't a real big real estate investor. And the very first deal I want to say that him and I went in on, it was a fourplex that we bought and another single family house. And, you know, I did quite a bit of work on it to help him out doing, you know, some maintenance because I thought, well, it's my, my place. And I put in five grand on this thing. And I was still going to college. And then a few years after that, I hadn't heard about it much. And I asked my dad, well, what, what's going on with these properties? And he said, oh, I let them go back to the contract for deed holder. They weren't making any money. Oh. And I'm, I'm like, what the <laughs> that, That's, you know, so, you know, and, and anyway, so that was one. And then, uh, you know, there's some other things along the way. I, I, you know, was partners in a little tavern. So we bought a real estate you could say a building and we did, we ran a business out of it. Um, I, uh, you know, and at, at one point when my father had a stroke and I had to take over his properties, he had a, a duplex that he lived in and an office building that he worked out of. And, you know, when somebody has a, when somebody dies, you know what to do with stuff, stuff goes through probate and, and whatever. Right. But when somebody has a stroke, you, you can't sell stuff, you know, unless you have authors, it, it just becomes a mess, right? The mortgages are still due. So I took over the, the properties um, they had big mortgages. I actually mortgaged my own house to to pay those off. I had him sign the properties over to me, and that was probably my biggest start with renters, because I had all of a sudden, you know, I had he had one renter. I didn't even know what what they were paying for rent. Didn't know if they paid that month or not. And they came down, and they I think they were paying like seven hundred fifty dollars a month, which was less than the mortgage payment. <laughs> um, and so I had to scramble around and and get stuff rented, but. But it worked out. I was I became a Section 8 landlord, which looking back, that maybe wasn't the best thing. But it does teach you a lot about tenants. And it teaches you a lot about um, property maintenance. And it teaches you a lot about learning how to screen tenants. Because at one point, I thought, how can anybody manage more than two or three properties when you have Section 8 tenants? Because it just every time you turn around, it's something, some drama. Right. Something has to be done. The cops are being called, whatever. It's just something. And so anyway, that was it. And then in 2005, six, seven, kind of in that time frame, I wanted to buy more. So I started looking at properties and, and was having a hard time trying to find properties that met good investment criteria. And then, you know, lo and behold, 2008 came around and it was like, Here's some here's some properties that meet your investment criteria. Buy as many as you want. So luckily by then I had some cash saved up. I mean I still got mortgages, but you know to get an investment property, as you know, it takes 20% down generally. You know sometimes 25 or 30 if you want the best interest rates. And so we were putting in uh, in big um, big down payments and and going and 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 buying. Uh, I bought a fourplex every year: 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12. So that's what uh, that's what we did. Wow! So most of your real estate has really been accumulated in the last ten years. Yes, mostly since two thousand eight. So you could say nine years, and and I bought like say a fourplex two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, and then in two thousand thirteen I actually did a flip on a property. Two thousand fourteen I don't think I did anything. Two thousand fifteen I bought a contract for deed and then canceled the contract for deed. So then, you know, that became my property. And that's an interesting story about, you know, I got some, some pretty creative properties that I've purchased over the years. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. 
So yeah, so one of the properties, and you know, I bought them at sheriff sales, and and you know, then they got redeemed. But you still, in Minnesota anyway, you buy them at the sheriff sale, you hang on to them for six months, they get redeemed, which is fine because you still get the underlying interest rate on the mortgage. So one of them I got ten and a half percent for six months. So that was kind of a nice little gig. Um, and then another property I did a flip, and the way we did the flip was the, um, you know, we put them and I went with a partner on that deal. We went and we put a mechanics lien on a piece of property that was in foreclosure. So the property went into foreclosure. And in Minnesota, you have six months to be able to redeem the property. Um, when you have a mechanics lien, you just become another lien holder. So they had a pretty good size first mortgage, a uh, second mortgage about half of that, and then our mechanics lien for 150 bucks that we paid the homeowner 4,000 bucks to put on the property. And then you know, the first mortgage, they already have money in there. The second mortgage, they did not want to buy out the first mortgage. So then we stepped up and bought out the first mortgage and, and it became ours. You know, we had to do a little fix up and we sold it. Um, I bought another one that was pretty creative where I bought the the house, the, the fourplex was in foreclosure. This was in 2012. Um, I bought the mortgage from the bank, continued the foreclosure. And then at the end of the redemption period, it became mine. So buying the mortgage from the bank was a pretty good pretty good um, discount, you know, it was 197 versus what they're worth now, about 500, you know, just five years later. Wow. So you've got all these fourplexes. Why not trade up to a bigger one? You know, that's a good question. To do that, I would have to sell them, you know, and then trade up to a bigger one. And then I would have to kind of trust somebody else to manage the property. And if they didn't manage the property correctly or somehow lost money, then there goes my retirement. You know, I'd have to go back to work, right? Because, I mean, I'm kind of relying on the income on these things. So there's probably a lot of ways for me to leverage the the money that I have into these things. But at the end, you know, I can do what I want pretty much when I want if I just continue the path that I'm on, you know, and, and to, to, to do something else with them. You know, like I say, if I sold them outright, and took the money. That would be a pretty good, pretty good sum. But I'd pay a lot of money in depreciation recapture and capital gains. Um, I could buy a, another place with a 1031. But then, if it didn't produce the income that these did, well, then I'm kind of cutting back on my income. And and you start thinking, well, what am I going to be a Walmart greeter at some point? Not that there's <laughs> anything matter with a Walmart greeter, right? But you know what I mean. It just becomes where I think we're on a pretty good path. Just don't self destruct. And so that's that's kind of my 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 anti self destruct path that I'm on. What are the plans for the future? Do you continue buying a, a fourplex a year, every other year? You know, I'm always looking for deals, but I'm not necessarily looking as aggressive for deals. So if somebody comes up and and uh, tells me about a deal, I might be interested in it. Uh, but at this point, you know, and and the the contract for deed one just kind of came up out of the blue for me. The, the, the one I bought a couple of years ago. Um, and that's a property that I, that the people wanted to sell it. And I, you know, and this is, I always tell people, make sure other people know that you're a real estate investor because when deals come up, maybe you can find your own deals, but if people know you're a real estate investor, deals sometimes come up that other people know about and they know you're a real estate investor and they either come to you to bail them out or come to you to tell you about a deal or something. So in this case, my tenant said, hey, are you interested in buying more property? 
And I said, well, I'm always interested in buying more property, and I always am, but I'm never interested in paying retail. Um, you know, I'm not interested in making the seller money. I'm interested in making me money. So they said, well, our parents bought a house on a contract for deed in 2012, and here it is three years later. They have a balloon payment, and they can't make the balloon payment. So they want to sell a house that they bought for $60,000 three years ago in 2012 for 45000 well, in three years, I know the thing has gone up in value. The tax value is quite a bit higher than that. The uh, Zillow says it's worth a hundred grand, so I think, geez, forty-five grand ought to be enough. So then I talked to them. We made the deal. It turned out they had a big IRS lien on the property, so we couldn't make the deal happen in a typical sale because the IRS is looking for money, um, all the profits, right? That that will be on there. So we decided to. I contacted a contract for deed owner and had the contract for deed assigned to me, you know, I gave him the money for the balloon payment. He assigned that contract for deed to me. And then I canceled the contract for deed. And then the tenants that were living there, the, the owners now became tenants. And they, I kept their payment the same, but now instead of having principal and interest, it was just rent. And it was like a 15% return is the way I looked at it. So, and then since then, now they moved out a few months ago. Now I'm rehabbing it to do a sale. And Zillow says at this point, it's worth about 145. So I don't know what it's really worth, but um, we'll find out here in the spring. Is kind wow. of what I'm thinking. So, what's kind um, of been your investment criteria over the years as you've bought these real estate properties? So, when I first started investing or started looking at properties, my thinking was if I feed the property a hundred bucks a month, maybe that's a good deal because property was going up. Because I didn't really know anything about investing, right? And I was looking on the MLS and and doing other things and you know, and I had a good job and I thought I can feed the property a hundred bucks a month. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but that's not investing. That's idiocy or whatever you call it. So then I started looking at some online courses and different seminars. You know, you go to these rah-rah seminars that, you know, they always get you to buy the next thing. You, I'm sure you've been to them or heard about them or whatever. And so, but you do get information from them, right? So it's good to go to them. It's whether you go to the second leg of the journey or the third or the fourth, that that's where maybe that's not such a good deal. So, <laughs> right, because you've seen these things, right? Yeah, for an hour totally. webinar and, you know, oh, now you can sign up for coaching or an hour webinar and now you can send away for the kit. So I actually sent away for one by Dave Lindahl. And Dave Lindahl had a good program and it was it was expensive, but I read it and, and you know, it was money back guarantee. And, you know, I, I couldn't use it at the time so I sent it back, and by God, I got my money back. And anyway, but a lot of stuff stuck in my head, though, still by reading it. Maybe I should still send Dave the money back. But, um, but you know, so I recommend his course. But anyway, and I don't get any money off it either. But one of his criteria was a 15% cash-on-cash cash return. And up until then, I didn't even realize that there was such a thing as a return when you buy a property on day one. So that was a whole new mindset. So then I started analyzing properties, right? I'd go to the MLS, I'd go to LoopNet, I'd go to wherever there's a property, and I would analyze it. I built a spreadsheet that says, you know, here's all the expenses and here's the returns and, and whatever else, right? So properties I wasn't even thinking about, Brian. Million-dollar properties, $500,000 properties, whatever. Any property that I could find, I'd key in the numbers based upon what they would say in the ad, knowing that the ad was probably wrong. And Dave Lindahl, one of his courses says, if the expenses are, if you know what the expenses are, use them. But if it's less than 45% of your rental income, use 45%. So that was kind of a nice little, because a lot of times you go and here's a, 
24-unit apartment building and maintenance expense is $600 a year. Well, uh, you know, if you don't know any better, you think, oh, that's that's pretty cheap to maintain that thing. Well, th- well, it's not. It's a lot higher than that. But that's all they're telling you because they're not counting things correctly. Or they're managing it for free, right? That was another thing that I learned. You know, you shouldn't manage your property for free. You should always count on somebody needs to get paid for management, even if it's yourself. So you might not get actually paid, but you should count on the management fee in that property to, to make sure that that thing is going to return some sort of income. And then your 15% might go up to 20 or 22%, 25% because you're managing it yourself. But the numbers that you want to look at are at least a 15% cash on cash return paying for a management company. And so the criteria that I pretty much look at is somewhere around the 15% cash on cash return. It's a lot tougher to find that these days than it was in 2008, 9, 10, 12. Um, still can be done, but it's a lot tougher. Uh, but that doesn't mean you go out and spend money on, on properties and, and feed them 100 or $200 or $500 a month because you're thinking it's worth more. Because I think the market might be a little frothy. I don't know. Time will tell. You know, if interest rate go up to 5 6 7%, is real estate still going to be worth what it is? I don't know. So... You know, because ultimately, real estate's a it's a monthly payment. It's not three hundred thousand dollars. It's a monthly payment. When taxes go up, I think your real estate value falls too, or you know, because less money can go to principal. Yeah, interesting. So you've kept this fifty-fifty portfolio allocation. Is that the plan for the future as well? You know, it was fifty-fifty, and that's just kind of the way it worked out, right? So my, you know, when stocks go up. It kind of, it, it, it wasn't, at one point it was a lot more real estate than it was stocks. And then stocks went up and I kept putting more money into stocks and reinvesting dividends. Um, but the real estate's been going strong too, but I just haven't been buying any real estate. But I still buy, even though I'm not working, I, I still buy a fair amount of stocks. When I say stocks, it's really ETFs and it's really dividend ETFs um, every year just to kind of keep moving that along. Because at some point I do want to sell the real estate, right? Either transition to something more passive or have somebody managing it for me, which then would drop my returns. And then I'll need the dividends to kind of take that over, take that, you know, so then the dividends will supplement my income rather than the real estate. Real estate will still be a big part of it, but the dividends will cover my management fee, let's say, that I'm used to, you know, spending now. So, or saving, right? Yeah. And you've managed all of your properties yourself pretty much. Pretty much everything. You know, once in a great while, I might hire somebody. Um, like yesterday, I was fixing a drain, right? So I bring my little rigid K400 drain machine. It's a, about a $500 drain cleaner. And I kind of clean out a kitchen drain. But I have called Roto-Rooter in the past after I attempt to do do it myself. Like if I, if I have a main line kind of issue, you know, mine will sort of clean it, but not I need the Roto-Rooter guys. Or once in a while, I might hire, like I hired a window company to change some windows for me. Um, but pretty much even while I was working full time, 25 renters and I did it all rehabbing, getting new renters, screening tenants, showing apartments, signing leases, the whole bit. Wow. What mistakes have you made along the way? Good question. So when I first started, I was a section eight landlord and I really didn't know anything about landlording and you just assume that everybody's a good person, right? Cause that's what you run across everybody and everybody is pretty good. And I'm not saying Section 8 tenants are bad because they're not necessarily bad, 
and it's just a program, right? So Section 8 program is not a bad program. There's some hoops that you got to jump through. But the quality of your tenants in a Section 8 program is usually low. So a lot of times new landlords like to get into it because it's guaranteed money. But really, to handle a Section 8 tenant, you need to be, or I should say to handle a low-quality tenant, you need to be a top-notch landlord. Like I could probably do it now, but I, it's just too much work for me. Having said that, that's probably one of my things. So buy better properties or, or you know, I had decent properties and I, I just went for the easy money, what I thought was easy money. And it's not, you know, just get good quality tenants and the money will come. It's guaranteed. If you have a good quality tenant, your rent is guaranteed because that tenant is going to make sure you get it. What what plans do you have to, to grow or maintain your, your level of net worth? Do you have a goal for the future or a number of doors you want or passive income you want? You know, I want to kind of keep my passive income where it's at. I do want to do something with to maybe move to a lower tax state, maybe Florida where there's no state tax. Um, so I want to be able to do something like that. And I got to talk to my accountant. I got some ideas that that might work. You know, and that's the problem. You know, sometimes when you're an investor and you get a lot of ideas, sometimes when you pass it by your account, he says, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> you can't do that, right? So you got to always, it's good to run it by some people to make sure you're not doing anything too crazy. Um, I'm not really planning on increasing doors unless something really happens that's, that's, uh, that's good. Because like I say, right now I do a ton of traveling. Um, I'm able to keep my properties full. You know, I stick around them in the summer. And in the wintertime when it's cold here in Minnesota, it's going to be, you know, the high is going to be below zero here this weekend. So I don't want to be here. And, I mean, I'll be here this weekend, but I, I don't want to be here for the winter. So I want to get away for the winter. The properties are rented for, the, for you know, nobody's leaving before the end of March, maybe even the end of April. Um, and my tenants are pretty stable. You know, I do switch off maybe six or eight tenants a year out of the 25. But for the most part, people don't move in the winter. And if they do, you know what, then I, I worry about it then. Um, you know, it's not the end of the world to take a vacancy if I'm somewhere warm for a month or two before I get back. So what kind of criteria do you use to screen your, your tenants? You know, that's a good question because screening tenants is the lifeblood of a landlord, right? That if you can't, and I have a company that does the work for me, but I have to analyze the results. So the problem with background checks is everybody knows you have to do a background check on tenants. Everybody knows that, right? Everybody. So you, you send off the thing and you get a credit score and you get other information. And, and sometimes landlords will call people and, and this and that. Um, but having said that, I got a company that does that. And they, they call the past landlords. They call the employers. They call everything, right? They give me a credit score. They do the background check. So I need to have a county-level criminal background check. Not a national level, but a county level. So national level, everybody thinks, oh, it's national. It covers everything. But people generally get in trouble in their own county, or at least where they've lived throughout the year. So any place that they lived in the last, say, seven or eight years, I want a county-level criminal background check because that tells me if they get parking tickets, everything. And national criminal background checks is out of date. Criminal records aren't uploaded sometimes if they're misdemeanors. And I want to find out about misdemeanors because if you commit a lot of misdemeanors, I don't want you. Because it tells me that you don't know how to behave, right? Secondly is the credit check. Now, depending upon what your risk level is, my risk level in apartments is not as high as maybe somebody with a $300,000 house. 
So in my apartments, I require at least a 625 credit score. And I require that credit score for all occupants of the unit. Wow. So you got a, a couple with an 18-year-old kid. That 18-year-old kid better have a decent credit score. And 625, is, by the way, is not decent. But it's it tells somewhere around the 600 to 625, it kind of separates the wheat from the chaff. And, and you get the behavioral issues, you don't get them as much. Um, because people with low credit scores, I mean, and they've done a lot of studies and I've done a lot of, uh, um, analysis on them too, you know, different studies, reading them and different research I've done. First of all, there's only about maybe 15 or 16% of the population that has less than a 600 credit score. So you're not really ruling out that many people. Um, the other thing is people with low credit scores have a tendency to do risky behaviors and they have more insurance claims. Right, because insurance companies know that too. So, I don't want tenants performing risky behaviors in my apartments, you know. And and it just seems that at 625, you still get solid people. Um, it's not like you can't get people. Yeah, I still get plenty of people applying. And you know, I've had tenants with 800 credit scores rent in my apartments. So to get 650, 675, 625 is not really that difficult. Do you have a, an income requirement at all? I generally go 30% of whatever their income is, my rent should be 30% or less. So I want to make sure that, you know, and you could say that's three times the rent, um, which is a pretty good number. Um, and, and instead of saying three times the rent on my advertisements, I, I figure out what my rent is and I calculate the, the income that it needs. And then I say, you need to make this amount of money because a lot of people think, oh, I make three times and they really don't. But if you say you need to make $45,000 a year, they can tell if they make $45,000 a year, right? <laughs> and that's what it is. What kind of advice do you have for the 25 or 30-year-old that just, just starting out? You know, save your money. That's the first thing, right? Live below your means. You can't overemphasize that enough. Build your 401k because your 401k should be your first place that you put money. And whether it's a Roth 401k or a or a regular uh, regular 401k, it doesn't really matter. If you're working a job that, that provides that, especially if they're giving you money, put it away. And then if you got a healthcare savings account, put as much as you can in a healthcare savings account too. Because that's money typically, at least when I was working in bigger companies, it comes out even before you, you take out FICA. So it goes in tax-free, it comes out tax-free. And let it ride. Plan on paying your, paying your Medicare premiums with that, uh, with that HSA money, the healthcare savings account. And then after that, do a Roth IRA, um, yeah, a Roth IRA or a regular after-tax IRA, right? You can put 5,500 in that. And after that, if you have money left over, think about real estate. Um, don't just think, because real estate's a high-risk, high-reward business. Um, you know, I've been in it a little while, so I, you know, I, I've screened tenants and, and I, I got to knock on wood every time because the next tenant might be a nightmare lesson for me. But having said that, you know, if you only have a little bit of money and you invest in real estate, you could lose it. You could lose it all. You know, one bad tenant could be ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of damage. You know, especially by the time you evict them, by the time you fix it, and if you don't fix it yourself, if you hire it out, it I tell you, ten thousand dollars goes quick when you're hiring contractors. Um so you know, do your and then just do the S and P 500. Don't don't be crazy with you know buying gold and buying Bitcoin and and <laughs> you know all these other fancy stocks. Just buy the S and P 500. 
you know, because if you buy individual stocks, and sure, I know the Fang, you know the the the, the Facebook, the, the Amazon, whatever. Sure, those are good stocks, but at some point you might want to say, you know what, I want to get a little bit out of this and go into something else. Well, then you got to pay capital gains, right? But if you're in S and P 500, well, you don't have to worry about paying capital gains along the way. It just happens, right? Because you just hold on to the S and P, and when something gets better or worse. The S&P guys, right, the, the smart guys behind the scenes, they put in a few companies and they take out a few companies. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pay capital gains on it. You just hold on to the S&P 500 and let it ride. Um, and like I say, only after you do all that kind of stuff, then it's time to start thinking about real estate. But if you don't live below your means, forget it anyway. Yeah. And, you know, real estate can even be something that, you know, a lot of times people will buy a house. And then they'll buy a three-bedroom house because everybody knows you got to plan for the future, right? So you buy a three-bedroom house. Well, you probably only need one bedroom. So why do you want to buy a house, right? And now if you do buy a three-bedroom, then get some renters in there, right? Get some roommates. But if you don't want roommates, wouldn't it be better to rent a place right across the street from where you work? And since you only need a one-bedroom, you rent a one-bedroom. And then later on, when you need a two-bedroom, you rent a two-bedroom. And then because you're not commuting as much because you're renting right across the street from work or pretty close to it, that extra hour a day that everybody else is commuting, use that hour a day to work on a side gig, to work harder at work so you get more promotions, to whatever, do something with that extra hour a day that everybody else is commuting. And like I say, you're, you're living across the street from work and then if a better job comes up across town, you, you take the better job across town, and then you move across the street from that place. And at that point, like I say, you, you rent another one bedroom. You don't have to buy rakes. You don't have to buy shovels. You don't have to buy, you know, snow blowers. You don't have to buy a whole host of things that if you're a homeowner, you have to buy. Did you ever invest your money that was in your HSA? I do. I just have that in, in like an S&P 500 kind of fund. I only got about six different funds that they let me invest in, but that's just in an a S&P 500 fund. Okay. Good. Talk about your blog a little bit. Okay, no nonsense, landlord. And now I'm overdue on putting a post out there. <laughs> you know, I started that a few years ago. Um, I think 2014, and it was kind of a neat little little idea because I was already president of the homeowners association. I was sending them weekly emails on how to better to manage their property and how best you know to do something and and different events that were happening in, in the homeowners association and just all these little tips. And I thought. You know, I've done a lot of research on, on things because I did a lot of research on credit score statistics. You know, did, how many people have what credit scores and what insurance companies do with them and, and the whole things. What kind of people own pit bulls? You know, if you're going to be killed by a dog, what kind of dog is it going to be? Pit bull, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the other thing. And so I, I had all these stories or, or weekly articles and I thought, why don't I do something with a blog? And... And I just started doing a few things. And to be honest, I don't really make a lot of money on it, you know. But it is kind of a neat little thing. It's kind of like an online diary, you could say. Um, and so I just started putting some of these articles out there. And, you know, I modified them maybe to better fit the blog rather than the Homeowners Association. Um, but having said that, then now I got, you know, quite a few articles out there. And and, um, and I've met a ton of people because there's been different um, blog, uh, whatever, where a bunch of bloggers get together. And that's kind of neat. You know, to, to meet different people that you read their blog forever or, you know, for quite a while and you see their picture maybe or you see their caricature or whatever you see and you finally meet them in person and they're just regular guys, you know. 
And that's, I mean, that's all bloggers are, right? Just regular guys or girls, whatever, that, that, uh, that, that, that just write their thoughts down. Are there any books or products that you'd recommend? You know, and a lot of people have asked me that, and, and I don't read as many books as I had. I know that, that uh, a good book on investing, and there was a book by Peter Lynch, and, and that was, and I can't remember, really remember the, but Peter Lynch was the big Merrill Lynch guy, I think he was, that had all kinds of, uh, I don't know if he's Merrill Lynch. As a matter of fact, now I think about it, maybe he was. But anyway, he, he wrote a book on investing. That was a real good book that I read. Um, I, I like Trump's Art of the Deal. You know, I know he's president now, but I read it long before he was president. And I thought that was a pretty good deal because it talked about doing stuff. Um, and in real estate, you, you got to make the deals because your money is made when you buy the property. Because if you pay too much for it, forget it. You're not going to cash flow, you know, because everybody's looking at properties on the MLS, right? And if it's a real good deal, the agent is probably going to buy it before he puts it on the MLS or he knows somebody, right? So, um, anyway, but, but yeah, I would still advise people, you know, and like I say, I don't get paid by, da by Dave Lindell, but, um, Dave Lindell's courses, I think is a pretty good course. And I even got, got a four day class down in Dallas, Texas that I was a veteran. So we invited, you know, a few veterans there to, to take the class for free. Um, this multifamily millions or whatever. And I wrote a, a little review on my blog about it. Um, but it was a terrific, terrific class, four days of a pretty intense analyzing properties. You know, knowing what to do when you buy a property. Well, appreciate you coming on the show today. We had Eric with the net worth just over $5 million. Appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.